0: Let us pray. Gracious God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, grant us, we ask, to be grounded and settled in your truth by the hearing of your word and by the coming into our hearts and minds of your spirit. That which we know not, reveal that which is wanting in us, fill up, that which we know, confirm. Keep us blameless in your service, through our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Jeff and I launch out into a new series of sermons on this day on Paul's first letter and this letter to the Thessalonians. This is the first chapter. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father, and in our Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before God our Father Your work produced by faith. Your labor prompted by love. Your endurance inspired by the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved of God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power. With the Holy Spirit. Deep conviction. We know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy that is given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything more about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord. 400 years ago, English separatists, Calvinists by conviction, seeking refuge from the repression of their religious beliefs and practices, a repression organized by a state church, fled to the Netherlands to be welcomed by the Dutch Calvinists there. They worshipped at the one English-speaking Reformed church in Amsterdam before they went back to England briefly, found funding, and set sail for America, where there was no state church, indeed no state. They sailed on the Mayflower, Lois and I, three Sundays ago, worshipped in that English-speaking Reformed church in Amsterdam. Their brief presence in this congregation and sanctuary are commemorated in the stained glass and by the preservation of one of the pews in which they sat and worshipped. We enjoyed being connected to an earlier era of the church in which fresh expressions of faith endured a mean-spirited oppression, indeed, even triumphed, History attests to their victory. Our faith is connected to theirs. This story is the common story of the people of God. It was first lived and told of the Thessalonians. The preachers and the people, the persecution and the patience to persevere, the practical efforts to put into practice what was newly and deeply believed, and there was travel. Our witness to their faith and faithfulness is not in stained glass or pew, but in this letter to Paul, to a struggling people, newly become the people of God, and from the beginning persecuted, and in the end victorious. Our faith is their faith. The Pilgrims were an earlier era of the Church of God, the Thessalonians were the first. First, this brief letter to the small assembly in Thessalonica is Paul's first letter. As such, it does not always sound so much like the Paul of his other later letters. He has not yet developed his unique style. He has not yet settled on the most robust themes of his letter writing, and thus this letter gives glimpses into an apostle still in the making. And this letter is the oldest letter we have written by any Christian to anyone, As such, it gives us the first glimpse into the earliest connections between preacher and people, between apostle and convert, mentor and disciple. And thus this letter, with writing, says in so many words and in sincere ways what was from the very beginning first written on their hearts. This letter reveals to real people in real time the most real matters. As such, it reveals to us on every page who these first Christians were, what moved them, what they trusted to be true, how they lived. In the study of this letter, over the next weeks, we learn who we are. This is us at our beginning, the us as the new people of God the Father, the first people of the Lord Jesus Christ. This letter fully available for our reading and for our instruction and for our study, connects our congregation, thought old by some by being more than 150 years old, to one of the first congregations at their beginning. Are they like us? More importantly, are we like them? Most importantly, what does God, who spoke through a still-forming apostle, to a newly begun community of new believers have to say to us this day in this season of our life in God. These words are the first words written by a Christian that we have, period, first. And first we see thanksgiving. Paul will include an early statement of thanksgiving in all his letters but one. He learned thanksgiving early. Here's his earliest expression of it. Paul will be specific in thanksgiving, what they were believing specifically, how they were living specifically. But first, Paul is simply and profoundly thankful that they were, that God had called them into being, and that they were believing, that they were living the faith. He can be excused if he had had some doubt about it. While he was still preaching to them in Thessalonica, along with Silas and Timothy and Luke, fierce opposition began. On day one, mobs formed, false accusations were leveled, arrests were made. The citizens, more than Paul or Silas or Timothy or Luke, bore the brunt of this, the new believers. With the gospel still being introduced, belief just begun that day, early in the morning. It was violently threatened by the end of the day. Mature Christians sometimes flag in the face of hostility. Week old, day old believers? What do you think is going to happen? Paul will later speak to them as being like a wet nurse or parent to them. At the beginning, it looked like they might be stillborn. The mission itself had to be abruptly abandoned. The new believers told and helped Paul and Silas to escape. They did. The preachers had been there less than a month altogether. A month. Three Sabbaths, Luke will tell us in his report in the book of Acts. Is that enough time for faith to become faithfulness? Is that enough time for any seed to really begin? And now they had been separated by a month, maybe less all of this takes place in weeks that you can probably count on two hands. Paul had gone eventually to Corinth, and he reports he had come weak, fearful, trembling. He was troubled. All of this trouble. For what? Timothy was sent back to Thessalonica to get word. Had any belief survived? Had anything survived? Had any one Survived. Timothy returned with a surprisingly glowing report. They, believing, had survived. They were. Paul is simply, at first, thankful that they simply were. There's a you, the people of God. That's first. And not only were they surviving, they were thriving, and there was evidence of it already. Their work, their labor, their perseverance, they were active, alive, at it, on it, living it. Were they attending to each other as family, feeding the poor, healing the sick, caring for the dying? These are the marks of faithfulness Paul will learn to teach other churches. Perhaps he learned them from these early Thessalonian believers. One can suspect that Paul and others will measure the faithfulness of other later congregations by the faithfulness of this one early church. Their faith, their love, their hope We're showing through. Paul will speak much of these three demonstrations of the faith and faithfulness, faith, love, hope, in later letters. And this triad will be famously named in Corinthians as the three that remain. They are also the three that initiate. They are the marks of the people of God. Faith, love, hope. Faith, that trust in God for all that has been, past if you will. Love, that life in God and all that we do now, present, if you will. Hope, that wait for all that God will do, the full and whole future. In this, the first description written of a congregation of God's people, after less than a month of instruction and a month of beginning, in the midst of unrelenting persecution begun on their first day, they are fully occupied showing faith, love, and hope in practical ways in the middle of their city. We always thank God for all of you on every remembrance of you in every one of our prayers. This was not the work of preachers, though they had worked hard, traveling far, preaching under threats of violence, This is not the work of the people, though they were working very hard, laboring in love in the face and space of animosity. This has been the work of God first. God loved you. God chose you. God elected you. We know this because when we preached preached to you, the writers say, the power of God was present convincing you. We're not that convincing, but the Spirit is. Convincing you in your depths. The Holy Spirit showed up. God does this sort of work. First, before we set to work and while we work. And because the Holy Spirit was present, is present, so too is joy. The Holy Spirit and joy go together. Severe suffering, as Paul calls it, did not diminish their joy. It does not diminish joy ever. Frankly, that's a hard thought to entertain. I confess it's somewhat beyond my experience. Perhaps one might hope that some remnant of joy would survive oppression. That'd be a good thing. Perhaps the hope of a later joy might inspire endurance for a season in the midst of suffering, I think. But the preachers, Paul and Silas and Timothy, upon hearing Timothy's report of the Thessalonians, spoke of what they themselves had experienced and learned earlier, and now saw mirrored in the believers in Thessalonica, there is joy in serving Jesus. Persecution or not? We lived among you for your sake, they say. You imitated us, we imitating the Lord. We who had known suffering, the Lord had known suffering. AND NOW YOU KNOW THE JOY GIVEN BY THE HOLY SPIRIT. GOOD ENOUGH. THEY WERE, THEY HAD SURVIVED, THEY WERE THRIVING. THAT'S NOT ALL. THE IMITATORS, LET ME SAY IT AGAIN, ONLY TWO MONTHS OLD IN THE FAITH, HAVE ALREADY BECOME A MODEL FOR ALL OF THE BELIEVERS FOR HUNDREDS, MILES AROUND. Macedonia and Achaia, all that surrounds Thessalonica. You, Paul, Silas, and Timothy say, were they as surprised as are we, have been preaching the gospel everywhere to everyone. You haven't just kept the faith. You're giving it away. Everybody knows this. So broadly spread and so well-known is your faith and your faithfulness. I have no need to say anything more about it. Without us needing to tell the story, The story is told of how you received us in the message. The story is told of your continuing conversion, turning away from idols, turning toward God, the living and true God. The story is told of how you wait for God's Son from heaven, risen from the dead, who rescues us from the coming wrath, Jesus. You know, I know, everyone within hearing knows. The message of God came to Thessalonica. God came to Thessalonica. You turned toward him. He gave you faith, love, hope. You live and labor in joy. Thanks be to God. I am. We are thankful. We are thankful for you in all of our prayers. These are the preacher's first words. The first words of a Christian writer to anyone, anywhere. First Before anything else, we are thankful. First, thanksgiving. Well, persecution and suffering are a part of the story, not just the context. To understand this first gathering of followers of Jesus, preacher and people, we need to know their challenges and thus their temptations and, well, thus our temptations and challenges. In order to benefit from their witness, we need to know better their witness. The city of Thessalonica was doing well. Most of the time, through the recent centuries, it had done well enough, but lately it was doing very well, thanks be to the Caesars. The town fathers had backed the right horse in the recent civil wars, and they were rewarded with an independence, an independence that reduced their burdens and made them prosperous. The primary road from Rome to the rich Greek east ran right through their town. The primary road up to the hinterlands and down to the great cities of Greece began and ended in their town. Trade was great, money was good, peace and prosperity. Thanks be to the Caesars. The Caesars ruled as emperors, established less than a century ago. Divine kings quickly became, divine right kings quickly became divine kings. The year of Paul's writing is 50 A.D., The first Roman emperor, Augustus, died just 30 years ago. He honored his adopted father, Julius Caesar, by declaring him a god on his death. Emperor Tiberius had given the same honor to Augustus at his death. Caligula, not waiting for death, declared himself divine while living. And Claudius, the fourth emperor, one who's now reigning, had shown some reserve. But by now, the Roman people had caught on. A divine king assured divine peace and prosperity they proclaimed their emperors as kings and as gods and gave every sign of worshiping. The signs were public. These were not matters of the heart so much as matters of civics, civic loyalty, civic solidarity, civic identity. This is us, they say, the people of the Roman emperor. And so quickly, at the same moment probably, them, the not us, There are always not us when we define us, are those who do not publicly worship this God among us. Thoughts of them were thoughts of treason, subversion of the good and good order, and putting peace and risk and prosperity and life and liberty. The followers of Jesus were from day one them. The followers of Jesus did not dispute this. They believed there was no turning toward God that did not require a turning away from this idolatry. And the recently established cult of the emperor, that's what idolatry looks like. Listen to this inscription written not by Augustus, but by a local priest of the imperial cult. It was found in the Greek east in a place much like La and can now be seen in the Berlin Museum. It reads, It seemed good to the Greeks of Asia in the opinion of the high priest Apollonius of Metaphilius and Xanthus. Since Providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has said in most perfect order, giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit All of humankind, sending him as a savior, that's the word, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to any posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the god, Augustus, was the beginning of the gospel, That's our word for the gospel, for the world that came by him. The Savior is Augustus. The phrase good tidings here is Evangelium, the Evangel, Paul and ours word for the good news of Jesus. The gospel is that Augustus has come and all is now well. By him wars cease. By him order is established for all the generations. By him all is so good no one can improve it. And all this began when Augustus was born. That's the glad tidings of great joy. Or not. Not, say the followers of Jesus. There will be other reasons for their persecution. There will be other charges. There will be other sources of animosity. But this will remain central and unresolved. We, all of us, all of us who are us, say the Thessalonians, say Augustus. They, the other, they say Jesus. There is no turning toward Jesus, God's appointed Savior of the world, that is not a turning away from Caesar. And hence our challenge and our temptation in the light of theirs. Christians in all times and places, ours being no exception, have had to turn away. The Mayflower pilgrims, not least, the reformers leading the way, the reformed church, that's you and I, also leading. There is in the heart of the way we express our faith a persistent and severe polemic against idolatry. God is our chief end, so therefore everything else is a potential rival. Most of all, we ourselves. Calvin says that the human heart is a factory for the making of idols. We do this. We're tempted toward it. We're prone to it. We've become proficient in it. Most of the idols we make look like ourselves. Ourselves might be writ large as emperors and kings. Our lives placed at the center of the universe is usually what it looks like our vision of god is distorted so therefore even our looking at ourselves we don't see this idol making but but by god's help god at our center becoming the people of god the people in god paul says we can see the idols about us and within us and turn away Worship, the very practice we're engaged in at this very moment, is designed to help us, leaving focus on all else and focus on God alone. We, the sheep of his pasture, turn away, turn toward. Well, the party of Caesar identified themselves early in Christian faith and life. Bold choices were present at the beginning. Further, Emperor Claudius had just evicted the Jews from Rome a year earlier. No doubt many traveled east along the famous Via Ignatius to Thessalonica. Suspect upon their own arrival, now unhappily associated with this new people following the Jew Jesus, the Jew who had been executed by Roman authorities for sedition, they publicly distanced themselves and joined in the accusations. Luke, who was present, writing journals, I think, and all this, and telling us all this in the book of Acts, says that though the preachers had spent their time there in the synagogue, the followers of Jesus were some Jews, a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and quite a few prominent women. Women have more of a freedom in Thessalonica and the cities of upper Macedonia. These new followers of Jesus had much to learn, you know, but what they knew from the beginning was that turning toward Jesus would be to turn away from all other saviors. By the way, I'm very sorry that you guys are to my right. This is just not fair to you. That's, that's evil. This is good. Just, that's, <laughs> didn't know how else to do that. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God says the writers. Remember, the early Christian critique of idols was not that they don't exist, but that they, lifeless, could not give life. Their new life had come from God and God's election. They would not deny that, and so they suffered, and so they had joy. The writers of this letter, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we don't know who took the lead, had not always been away, from, had not been away from Thessalonians long enough for false teaching to make much headway. So they're not so much correcting in this letter as commending them for their strong start. That strong start, entirely the work of God, not preacher or people, was an act of faith, laboring in love, hoping, waiting for Jesus to come. They turned toward God, turning away from idols, They proclaimed the good news of Jesus everywhere to everyone, miles around. They suffered. They had joy. They were a model for all the other later churches. Us. They would live and die the faith before us, they would become a model for us, as presented now in this writing. Well, the Mayflower Pilgrims suffered. Half died in the journey and during the first winter. Of the 19 women who set sail, only five were still alive after the first winter. As the second winter approached and the first crop had borne some harvest, they set aside three days for Thanksgiving. Because don't you know, first Thanksgiving. Let us pray. Gracious God, we pray for your church. Fill it with all truth in all peace. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where it is in error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, strengthen it. Where it is in want, provide for it where it is divided, reunited, where it is not planted. For the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen.